19, and a few yards of their lines, with all consideration for the statement that they are the greatest fighting machine the world has ever seen. All I can say is that the greatest fighting machine I have even seen is the French army. To me they seem invincible from the standpoints of power, intelligence, and humanity. This latter quality specially impressed me. I do not believe any army with such high ideals can easily be beaten. And I judge not only from generals in command, but the men in the trenches. One morning I was going through the trenches near the most important point where the line was continually under fire. Passing from the second line to a point less than a hundred yards from the German rifles I came face to face with a general of division. He was sauntering along for the morning stroll he chose to take in the trenches with his men rather than on the safer roads at the rear. He smoked a cigarette and seemed careless of danger. He continually patted his soldiers on the back as he passed and called them his little braves. I could not help wondering whether the German general opposite was setting his men the same splendid example. I inquired the French general's name, he was General Fayoul, conceded by all the armies to be the greatest artillery expert in the world. Comradeship between officers and men always is well known in the French army, but I never before realized how the officers were so willing to accept quite the same fate. In Paris the popular appellation for a German is, Bosch. Not once at the front did I hear this word used by officers or men. They deplore it, just as they deplore many things that happen in Paris. Every officer I talked to declared the Germans were a brave, strong enemy, they waste no time calling them names. They are wonderful, but we will beat them, was the way one officer summed up the general feeling. Another illustration of the French officer at the front, the city of Vermelles of 10.000 inhabitants was captured from the Germans after 54 days fighting. It was taken literally from house to house. The French engineers sapping and mining the Germans out of every stronghold destroying every single house, incidentally forever upsetting my own one-time idea that the French are a frivolous people. So determined were they to retake this town that they fought in the streets with artillery at a distance of 21 feet. Probably the shortest-range artillery duel in the history of the world. The Germans before the final evacuation buried hundreds of their own dead. Every yard in the city was filled with little crosses the ground was so trampled that the mounds of graves were crushed down level with the ground and on the crosses are printed the names with the number of the German regiments. At the base of every cross there rests either a crucifix or a statue of the Virgin or a wreath of artificial flowers, all looted from the French graveyard. With the German graves are French graves made afterward. I walked through this ruined city where, aside from the soldiery, the only sign of life I saw was a gaunt prowling cat. With me past these hundreds of graves walked half a dozen French officers. They did not pause to read inscriptions, they did not comment on the loot and pillage of the graveyard, they scarcely looked even at the graves, but they kept constantly raising their hands to their caps in salute regardless of whether the cross numbered a French or a German life destroyed. We were driving along back of the advance lines. On the road before us was a company of territorial infantry who had been eight days in the trenches and were now to have two days of repose at the rear. Plodding along the same road was a refugee mother and several little children in a donkey cart, behind the cart, attached by a rope, trundled a baby buggy with the youngest child inside. The buggy suddenly struck a rut in the road and overturned, spilling the baby into the mud. Terrible wails arose, and the soldiers stiffened to attention. Then, seeing the accident, the entire company broke ranks and rescued the infant. They wiped the dirt from its face and restored it to its mother in the cart. So engrossing was the spectacle our motor halted. 
and our captain from great general headquarters in his gorgeous blue uniform climbed from the car, discussing with the mother the safety of a baby buggy riding behind a donkey cart, at the same time congratulating the soldier who rescued the child. Our trip throughout moved with that clockwork precision usually associated only with the Germans. The schedule throughout the week never varied from the arrangements made before we left Paris. When we arrived at certain towns we were handed slips of paper bearing our names and the hotel number of our room. Amazing meals appeared at most amazing places. All the menus carefully thought out days before. Imagine fresh trout served you with other famous French delicacies in a little house in the battle zone, where only a few hundred yards of barbed wire and a few feet more of air separated you from the German trenches. During the German advance, also after the Battle of the Marne, there were many towns in the districts where it was impossible to obtain tobacco, spirits, or food staples. This condition has entirely abated, and the commissariat is now so well supplied that soldiers have sufficient tobacco even in the trenches. It was my privilege to take a brief ride at the front in an antebellum motor bus of glorious memory there being nothing left in Paris but the subway. Buses are now used to carry fresh meat. Although they have been used in transporting troops and also ammunition, we trundled quite merrily along a little country road in northern France. The snow-white fields on either side in strange contrast to the scenery when last I rode in that bus. I am sure I rode in the same bus before the war in my daily trips to the Paris office of the New York Times. Its sides are bullet-riddled now, but the soldier conductor still jingles the bell to the motorman, although he carries a revolver where he used to wear the register for fares. Trench life was one of the most interesting surprises of the trip. Every night since the war began I have heard pitying remarks about the boys in the trenches, especially if the nights were cold. I was, therefore, prepared to find the men standing in water to the knees, shivering, wretched, sick, and unhappy. I found just the contrary the trenches were clean, large, and sanitary. Although, of course, mud is mud. I found the bottoms of the trenches in every instance corduroy lined with modern drains, which allowed the feet to keep perfectly dry, and also the large dugouts where the men, except those doing sentry duty, sleep comfortably on dry straw. There are special dugouts for officers and artillery observers. I also visited a large, perfectly equipped Red Cross first aid camp, all built underground, extending from one line of trenches to another. All trenches, communication traverses, and observatory dugouts have received names which are printed on shingles affixed to the trenches on little upright posts. For instance, we entered one section of the trenches through Goyau de Spain. We traversed Avenue de Bois, Avenues Vagram and Friedland, and others commemorating Napoleonic victories. The dugouts of officers and observers were all called Villas Villa Chambry, Villa Montmorency being examples. It all seemed like cozy camp life underground except that three times the morning of our visit it was necessary to flatten ourselves against the mud sidewalls while dead men on crossed rifles were carried out, every head in that particular bit of trench being bared as the sad procession disappeared, although the maps show the lines of fighting to be rather wavy, one must go to the front really to appreciate the irregular zigzag, snake-like line that it really is, the particular bit of trenches we visited cover a front of 12 miles. But so irregular is the line, so intricate and vast the system of entrenchments, that they measure 200 miles on that particular 12-mile fighting front. When one leaves the trenches at the rear of the communication boya, it is astonishing how little of the war can be seen. Ten feet after we left our trenches we could not see even the entrance, 
We stood in a beautiful open field having our pictures taken, and a few hundred yards away our motor waked behind some trees. Suddenly we heard a zip-zip over our heads. German snipers were taking shots at us. In addition to the enormous force of men constantly in the trenches along the entire line there is an equal size reserve line directly behind them in case of sudden attack. The artillery is posted considerably further to the rear along with revealing stations, aeroplane hangars, and headquarters of the generals. But through all this enormous mass of men which we pass aid daily going to and from our front observation posts never once did we get the impression of parade. Three were just troops. Troops. Troops everywhere. Every hamlet. Every village filled with them. Every crossroads with their sentries. All of them. Hardened by winter and turns in the trenches. Are in splendid condition. And as opposed to the Germans. At least to the German prisoners I have seen. Each French soldier has a clear and definite knowledge of what the war is all about. The greatest event of his day is when the Paris newspapers arrive. What impressed me greatly was that in all the officers' quarters were copies of the French yellow book. The English, white paper, and German documents attempting to prove their innocence in causing the conflict. It is not sufficient for French generals or officers just to go to a war, they must know why they go to a war. Down to the last papers in the case. In six months the French privates had acquired one habit from the British Tommies that is drinking tea. Back of every section of trenches I found huge tea canteens, where thousands of cups are served daily to the soldiers who have decided for the first time in their life they really like such stuff. There one sees more soldiers at the same time than at any other place in the fighting zone, there they sit and discuss the future calmly and confidently, there being a distinct feeling that the war is likely to be over next summer. No one knows what the spring tactics of General Schaffer will be. Along the section of the front I visited the officers are all satisfied that the commander-in-chief's nibbling tactics had forced the Germans to retire on the average of two to three miles all along the line. The very name of that great man is spoken with reverence, almost with awe, by his children at the front. I therefore, from the facilities given me, can only make one assertion in summing up my opinion of the French Grand Army of 1915 that it is strong, courageous, scientifically intelligent, and well trained as a champion pugilist after months of preparation for the greatest struggle of his career, the French army waits eager and ready for the gong. The Echo de Paris has published today a letter that throws a considerable amount of light upon the psychology of the French soldier, and that shows how he behaves himself when subjected to very trying fire and compelled to act on his own initiative. It is written by the man to his wife and is as follows, I am acting as guard to a convoy, and uncomfortably installed, with no work to do, in the house of an old woman who has lent me a candle and writing materials, I shan't be suffering from the cold in the way I have done on previous nights, as I had a roof over me and a fire, what luxury, it's been freezing for several nights, and you feel the frost when you are sleeping in the open, but that is nothing to the three days we pass eight in the village if, we were stationed in the Mary, in front of us in the clock tower an artillery captain was taking observations. On the road between the church and the Mary a sergeant and four artillerymen were sending orders to the battery behind us. Suddenly a shell struck. We saw the artillerymen on the ground and the sergeant alone left standing. The fire was so thick that no one could think of going out. But suddenly one of the men moved. So I got up to find out about it. Taking care to put on my knapsack. When I was among them I found that one had been hit right in the heart. Two others were dying, one with his head in a pulp and the other with his thigh broken and the calf of his leg torn to a jelly. 
I helped the sergeant to mend the telephone wire that had been broken by the shell, and all the time we were having shells and bits of brick breaking around us. Then I went back to the Mary, and asked for someone who would not be frightened to come with me. Two of us went off to the village for a stretcher. I found one at the old ambulance, and was just leaving it when I heard the scream of a shell, and took cover in the chimney just in time. A big black brute smashed half the house in. My comrade and I hurried off after the wounded man. Our pals were watching us from the Mary, wondering if we should ever get back. Old Jerome, that's me, they said. We'll get back all right. And when back at the Mary I began to give the wounded man first aid. Another shell came along, and the place shook. Window panes rained upon us, and dust blinded us. But at last it cleared. Left alone with my wounded man I went on dressing him. And when the others got back I got them to help me take him to the schoolhouse nearby. I got congratulated by my comrades and the senior sergeant. But the colonel and lieutenant said nothing. Though later I heard they were pleased with me. But suddenly the colonel said, we can't stop here. Go and see if there's room in the cellars of the castle for four officers and thirty men. If there is don't come back, as we will follow you. We got there at last, two of us, but the owner took a long time opening. Meanwhile scraps of roofs and walls were raining on us, but with our knapsacks on our heads we were a bit protected. At last our knocks were answered, and we learned that there was room for four officers, but not for thirty men. The colonel and the men had to be warned. So my comrade started running back and I followed about fifteen yards behind. We passed a gap in the houses, with no cover, nothing but gardens. A shell came along. I dropped, while the other man hid in a doorway. The bits of it sang about our ears. I then sang out, as you are nearly there, go on, and I'll see if there is room in the farm nearby. I reached the houses and wait to see that he got through, because if he'd fallen I should have had to go back to warn the rest as he was going to shells burst in the courtyard of the Mary, and I thought of the colonel and the rest, but at last my comrade, reached the place and went in and I was free to try for the farm. Illustration, Vice Admiral Sir David B. the youngest of British admirals, whose fleet sank the Blue Ecker, and won the Battle of the Bight of Heligoland from the painting by Philip Alexis Laszlo de Lombos illustration. Count von Arivieni W. the German naval critic who has intimated that the United States might be a divided nation in case of war on my way I met a friend and asked him to join me. At the time I was thinking of you all, and it was not till later that I got frightened. There were five horses at the gate of the farm. I shifted them and showed my friend the entrance to the cellar. It was narrow, and he lost time through his knapsack. And these are the occasions when your life depends on seconds. I heard the scream that I know only too well, and guessed where the beast would lodge, and called out to him, that's for us. I shrank back with my knapsack over my head and tried to bury myself in the corner among the coal. I had no time, though, the shell reached, smashed down part of the house, and burst in the basement a couple of yards from me. I heard no more, but stone, plaster, and bricks fell all around me on the coal heap. I was gasping, but found myself attached. I got up and saw the poultry struggling and the horses struck down. I ran to the cellar, with the same luck as my friend. My knapsack caught me. A shell screamed a second time again for us, and it struck. Wallop, on the gable, while the ruins fell around my head. I pulled at my knapsack so vigorously that I fell into the cellar, and some of our men who were there called, here's a poor brute gunning. Not a bit of it. I was not touched then either. At last the bombardment stopped and we all got out, 
I noticed about 40 hens, some were pulped, others had had their heads and legs cut off. In the middle three horses lay dead, their saddles were in ribbons, equipment, revolvers, swords, all that had been left above the cellar had vanished, but there were bits of them to be seen on the roof. My rifle, which had been torn from my hands, was in fragments, and I was stupefied at not having been hit. I noticed, however, that my wrappings that were rolled around my knapsack had been pierced by a splinter of shell that had stuck in it. Later in the evening when I started cutting at my bread the knife stuck. I broke the bread open and found another bit of shell in it. I don't yet know why I was not made mincemeat of that day. There were fifty chances to a one against me. The two following days I stopped in the cellar, hearing nothing but their big shells, while the farm and the buildings near it were smashed in. Now it is all over. I am all right and bored to death mounting guard over wagons ten miles from the firing line, with a crowd of countrymen who had been commandeered with their wagons. I ought to tell you that the two shells I saw fall on the Mary when my comrade was going there unfortunately killed one and wounded five. It was a bit of luck for me, as I always used to be hanging about the courtyard. That's the sad side of it, but we had an amusing time all the same. The writer goes on to explain how he and his friends dressed up some men of strong in uniform and induced the Germans to shoot at them, and finally to charge them, while they fired at the Germans and brought several of them down. He continues, but that's nothing to what they'll get, and their villages will get, and their marys, chateau, and farms, and cellars. When we get there, I will respect old men, women, and children, but let their fighting men look out. I don't mind sacrificing my life to do my duty, and to defend those I love and who love me. But if I've got to lose my skin I want to lose it in Bosch land. I want the joy of getting into their dirty Prussia to avenge our beautiful land. Bandits, let them and their chicroot factories look out. If you saw the countryside we are recovering there's nothing left but ruins. Everything burned and smashed to bits. Cattle, more dead than alive, are bolting in all directions. And as for our poor women. When I see them I would destroy everything. Our officers say, we'll never be able to hold our men when we get into their country. But I say that I want to go there all the same. And yet when I say that I had a German prisoner to guard at the Mary, I gave him half my bread and knocked walnuts off the trees for him. All the time I saw five or more villages in flames around. Well, it all proves that a soldier should never say what he will do tomorrow. My job is to protect the flag, and the Boches can come on. Before they get it they'll have to get me. Vive la France. Somali volunteers from the London Times. November 10th, 1914. We have received from a correspondent a copy of a petition signed by the principal Somali chiefs in Jubaland, praying that they may be allowed to fight for England. The terms of this interesting document are as follows, to His Highness the Governor, through the Hakim of Jubaland, salams, yea, many salams, with God's mercy, blessing, and peace. After salams, we, the Somali of Jubaland, both Herdi and Ogden, comprising all the tribes and including the Magabul, but not including the Tulumia Ogden, who live in Biscaya and Tanaland and the Marahan, desire humbly to address you. In former days the Somali had fought against the government, even lately the Marahan had fought against the government. Now we had heard that the German government had declared war on the English government. Behold, our fitna against the English government is finished. As the monsoon wind drives the sandhills of our coast into new forms, so does this news of German evil doing drive our hearts and spears into the service of the English government. 
the Jubal and Somali are with the English government. Daily in our mosques we pray for the success of the English armies. Day is as night and night is as day with us until we hear that the English are victorious. God knows the right. He will help the right. We have heard that Indian Esperais have been sent to fight for us in Europe. Humbly we ask why should not the Somali fight for England also? We beg the government to allow our warriors to show their loyalty. In former days the Somali tribes made fitna against each other. Even now it is so, it is our custom, yet, with the government against the Germans, we are as one, ourselves, our warriors, our women, and our children. By God it is so. By God it is so. By God it is so. A few days ago many troops of the military left this country to eat up the Germans who have invaded our country in Africa. May God prosper them. Yet, O Hakim, with all humbleness we desire to beg of the government to allow our sons and warriors to take part in this great war against the German evildoers. They are ready. They are eager. Grant them the boon. God and Mohammed are with us all. If government wish to take away all the troops and police from Jubaland, it is good. We pledge ourselves to act as true government despise until they return. We humbly beg that this our letter may be placed at the feet of our king and emperor, who lives in England, in token of our loyalty and our prayers. Here follow the signatures of all the principal Somali chiefs and elders living in Jubaland. When King Peter Ray entered Belgrade from the New York Evening Post, February 15, 1915, Paris, January 29, so King Peter himself became priest and the great cathedral was filled with the sobbing of his people. Everybody knows the story of the deliverance of Belgrade, how the little Serbian army fell back for strategic reasons as the Austrians entered the city. But finally, after 17 days of fighting without rest, for the Serbian army has had no reserves since the Turkish war, knit its forces together, marched 100 miles in three days, and drove the Austrians headlong out of the capital. King Peter rode at the head of his army. Shrapnel from the Austrian guns was still bursting over the city, but the people were too much overjoyed to mind. They lined the sidewalks and threw flowers as the troops passed. The soldiers marched in close formation, the sprays clung to them, and they became a moving flower garden. The scream of an occasional shell was drowned in the cheers. They are emotional people, these Serbians, and something told them that, even with death and desolation all about them, they had reason to be elated. A few hours before, the Austrians had been established in Belgrade, confident that they were there to stay for months, if not for years. Now they were fleeing headlong over the river safe. Their commissariat jammed at the bridge, their fighting men in a rout. So King Peter rode through the streets of the capital with his army, and came to the cathedral. The great church was locked, because the priests had left the city on errands of mercy. But a soldier went through a window and did the portals. The king and his officers and some of the soldiers and as many of the people as could get in crowded into the cathedral, and, lacking someone to say mass, the king became a priest which is an ancient function of kings and, as he knelt, the officers and soldiers and people knelt, there was a vast silence for a moment, and then, in every part of the church, a sobbing, this account is a free translation of a woman's letter, in Serbian, received in the city a few days ago by Miss Helen Lozanic, who was here with me. Slavko grew which to interest Americans in helping her countrymen back to their devastated farms. Meh. Grewich is an American by birth, but Miss Lozanic is a Serbian, with the black hair and burning black eyes of the Slavs, and boasting twenty years perhaps. Her sister, Meh. Marinkovic, is wife of the Serbian Minister of Commerce and Agriculture. It was Meh. Marinkovic who had written the letter. 
I've just had this letter from my sister in Serbia, cried Miss Lozanic, when a friend called, and she waved in one hand a dozen sheets closely written in a script that resembled Russian. I've hardly had time to read it myself, but we will sit down and translate it into English, if you say. She says here that, when the Austrians had to leave Belgrade, they took 1.200 people as hostages non-combatants, you know. When they came into the city first they gave assurances that all non-combatants would be safe, but for the last few days before they left, no non-combatant could walk on the street without being taken up as a hostage. Just imagine, it says here that they even took a little boy, he can fight when he is older, they say, you know, the Turks used to do that, they came and took our boys of 9 and 10 years, and trained them as soldiers in their janissaries and when they had forgotten their own country they sent them back to fight against it. It is terrible, isn't it? The Austrians took the furniture from our people's houses and carried it across the river safe to the Simlin. They behaved frightfully. My sister says, brought all kinds of people with them, including women from the very lowest class, broke into the houses and stole the ladies' toilettes. One lady with many beautiful dresses found them all cut to ribbons when she got back to Belgrade. The Austrians brought lots of tea and crackers and conserves with them. Some soldiers had taken a lady's evening gown and pinned strawberries from strawberry jam all over it, in appropriate places, and laid the gown out for the lady to see. A merry smile illuminated Miss Lozanic's face as she read this part of the letter. Our brother, she went on, entered Belgrade with the army. He came back to Nishan leave about Christmas, the Serbian Christmas, which is about 13 days later than yours. Nish is the temporary capital, and my sister is there. He told them all about Belgrade. He had been to his house, the whole house was upset. Drawers forced, old letters opened and thrown on the floor. Papers strewn about. King Peter's picture autographed by the king thrown on the floor. And King Ferdinand's picture stamped on. Brother went to a private sanitarium that our uncle has in Belgrade. The Austrians had seized this, and had begun making it over for a hospital. They wanted the Bulgarian Red Cross installed. They had brought quantities of biscuits and tea and conserves, but they had to leave in such a hurry they couldn't take the things with them. And now, my sister says, we are eating them. Across the street four of our cousins live young men. They are all at the front now. Miss Lozanic laughed outright as she read this part. Their house was entered and all their clothes taken, dress suits, smoking jackets, linen, and all those things. It makes me laugh. It's naughty. I know, but they used to go out a good deal. I have seen them in those clothes so often. One of them wanted to marry me. He used to go out a great deal, this with another merry peal of laughter. Meh. Gruich's house was undisturbed, and ours. We used to know the Austrian at a shay before the war. He was rather a nice fellow. Played tennis with us a good deal. And so on. He came into Belgrade with his army. And he came around to our house. The servants recognized him. Because. You see, they knew him. The servants had stayed behind. He seemed to think he would like to make my sister's house his quarters. But after he had thought about it a while he went away. She says that she would like to go back to Belgrade. But the railroad has been destroyed a big viaduct of stone at Rilia. About 17 kilometers from Belgrade. And they have to go from Rilia to Belgrade by carriage. There are so many wagons of the commissariat on the road so many carriages have been seized by the government it is impossible for private citizens to get through. A jibby was put up in the square after the Austrians came into the city and a man was hanged the first morning. In spite of the fact that the Austrians had promised safety to the non-combatants, 
Dr. Edward Ryan, the head of the American Red Cross in Belgrade, protested, and the jibby was taken down. But my sister says that 18 more people were hanged in the fortress down by the save she hears where they wouldn't be seen. Mr. Bissers, a Belgian, is director of the electric lighting plant in Belgrade. He is a nice man, and, being a Belgian, he does not like the Austrians. He wouldn't light the town until they made him, and he wouldn't give them a map of the system at all. He was bound in ropes and taken away as a hostage, and they haven't heard from him since. The most touching thing was the entrance of King Peter, whereupon Miss Lozanic told the story related above. Rubbish. Straw. And dead horses were strewn through all the streets when the king and the army came in. The shooting was still going on. There was a jam of commissariat wagons at the bridge you know there is a bridge across the safe. The Austrians couldn't get across fast enough. There was so much confusion to many wanting to get over at one time. The Serbian artillery was shooting at them all the time. Presently the middle of the bridge went down. The men and the horses and the carriages and the wagons all went down together. They were pinned down by the masses of stone. But there were so many of them that they filled up the river and stuck up above the water. It was so bad that our people couldn't clear it up so there is an awful odor all over the town. She says that the Austrians brought 17.000 wounded, thinking that they were going to stay for months and perhaps forever. They turned over quantities of them to Dr. Ryan at the American Red Cross Hospital. General Frank, the Austrian commander, made a remark and he must have made it to Dr. Ryan. Although my sister doesn't say so, General Frank said, if the Russians had fought the way the Serbians have, there wouldn't be an Austrian soldier left. That's a good deal for the head of the Austrians to say, isn't it? We always expected victory, but even the most optimistic of us were surprised at what our peasant soldiers did. In the flight, the Austrians could not take care of their wounded, she says, and sent them back to Belgrade. Many of them, as prisoners, many must have died during the flight, too. For they got a jolting that wounded men can't stand. Our brother, who was, 